This is one of the many chants heard during the early days of the protests on the streets of Khartoum, the capital of Sudan. Hey, you arrogant racists, the protesters are shouting. We are all Darfur. The slogan was aimed at the government of the now-deposed President Omar al-Bashir. And the mention of the Darfur region was a reference to a fake news story which was invented by the Bashir regime. The aim of the attempted deception was to try to discredit the mass protests which have gripped Sudan. But the plan backfired and social media played a big part in helping expose it. I'm Anissa Subedar and this is the BBC Trending Podcast. Each week, we dig deep into social media to bring you the stories that you can't hear anywhere else. This week, we're going to be taking a look at how propaganda was deployed in the dying days of the Bashir regime and seeing how it played out on Facebook. As we record this show, the situation in Sudan remains in a state of flux. Civilian protesters are at odds with military leaders about the future direction of the country. I'm here with Owen Pennell from the BBC's Arabic Investigations team. Hi, Owen. Hi, Anissa. On the subject of fake news, at the heart of this story are a number of false confessions made under duress and broadcast around the nation. People filmed confessing to crimes they didn't commit. This is a video that appeared on Facebook and on pro-government TV channels, a news report that appears to show several students confessing to membership of a rebel group. Looking at the video now, Owen, I can see several young men sitting on a floor of a crowded cell. Then the video cuts to images of knives, and then three young men are looking directly into the camera. What this young man is saying is, I marched in the Khartoum University protests. I was a student from the dorms going home. I was carrying a bag and knives. In other words, he's apparently admitting to bringing weapons to protests which are supposed to be peaceful. These confessions, though, weren't quite what they seemed. I think we need to back up a bit. Owen, remind us about this wave of protests that we're seeing that have spread across Sudan. Yeah, so these protests started late last year over the rising cost of bread and fuel. But they quickly became much broader about President Bashir's three-decade rule, with people calling for him to stand down. On 11th of April, the military intervened and ousted President Bashir in a coup. This is certainly the most significant popular protest movement that Sudan has seen in a very, very long time. This is Jahan Henry. She's the Associate Director of the Africa Division of Human Rights Watch. We spoke to her before the coup. The economy is in tatters. Nobody feels as though the country is moving in the right direction. And we've even seen private sector employees come out and join protests, which is a significant feature. And the organizers or the the people taking to the streets and galvanizing others to do so are coming from various professional sectors of society. They're not the predictable old-school opposition groups that have in the past organized protests around specific issues. This seems to have a different source of momentum. (laughs) 
As the protest spread, the regime declared a state of emergency and a nighttime curfew in some cities with classes suspended at schools and universities across much of the country. Meanwhile, the security forces responded with violence. There was tear gas and protesters were fired at with live ammunition. Human rights groups estimate that dozens of people have been killed, with hundreds more put in prison. And what did former President Bashir say when these protests emerged? Well, Anissa, he made fun of his opponents, saying that changing the government or presidents cannot be done through WhatsApp or Facebook. This was obviously a nod to the role social media played in these protests. They've been pretty vital to the organising of demonstrations. Sudanese organisers shared details about the rallies online to get more people onto the streets. So, to give some context, there's a couple of things you need to know about President Omar al-Bashir. He seized power in a coup in 1989 and held on to it until earlier this month. A decade ago, the International Criminal Court issued warrants for his arrest, which are still outstanding. They result from accusations of genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity and other charges, all allegedly carried out in the Darfur region in western Sudan. Are the problems in Darfur connected in any way to this recent wave of protests that we're seeing now? Well, the conflict has been going on a long time and at the heart of it are claims that black Africans in Sudan have been oppressed and discriminated against in favour of Arabs, Sudan's largest ethnic group. Darfuri rebels took up arms against the government and they've been fighting them for years now. But in recent months, Sudanese security services, seeing thousands of people in the streets angry at the rising living costs and President Bashir, started linking the protests to violent Darfuri rebel groups. Why? Well, to try to discredit the protests and dissuade more people from coming out onto the streets. This is a press conference given last December by Mamoun Hassan Ibrahim, who was then Information and Communications Minister. He's talking about a raid on what he calls a rebel cell. He says that firearms were seized. He then says that members of the cell were plotting to kill protesters in order to escalate the chaos. Halfway through the press conference, he plays some video confessions like those we heard earlier, students admitting crimes they didn't commit. Those videos were aired both on national television and shared on Facebook. We asked some of our colleagues to voice them. I am part of the Popular Front and the Abdul Wahid al Nur wing of the Sudan Liberation Movement. The Abdul Wahid al Nur wing is a Darfuri rebel group that has been fighting government forces for years. We were planning a protest Thursday evening. They found some non firearm weapons with us and some firearms, which were for the protest. I am a follower of Abdul Wahab al Nur. Over the last few days, we have been planning for protests in neighborhoods and cities all across Sudan. We took training courses in how to infiltrate the protest and how to leave them without being detected. We were also trained in how to use weapons, including knives. There are other cells that have been recruited in neighborhoods and cities in an attempt to change the current regime. So, on the face of it, These were pretty incriminating statements. If true, they meant these young men in the video were involved in a violent rebel cell, that they were infiltrating the protests and intent on causing trouble. And so, from the authorities' point of view, their arrest was justified. Now, Owen, you said, if true. Yeah, because the evidence we have uncovered suggests those confessions were totally false and only made under duress. 
Me and my team have been in touch with people who know the students in the video. They include friends who say they witnessed what happened to the students after they were arrested. And from those accounts, we piece together what appears to have actually happened. The University of Sinner was closed on Thursday the 21st of December. We didn't have any place to stay. The only place that had room was a house rented by some people from Darfur. So we went there. The students who had enough money travelled back home to their families in Darfur, but the rest of us had to wait for their families to send money for a bus ticket. I was one of those people. Those are the words of a student that we're calling John. That's not his real name, by the way, but we're keeping him anonymous because we don't want him to come to any harm. His words are spoken by one of our colleagues. John is a student from Darfur and an important character in our story. Not only does he know the students who made those filmed confessions we heard earlier, but he was also arrested with them. There were 30 of us in the house and we were having our breakfast when three Toyota pickup trucks without number plates drove up. It was about 10 o'clock. They arrested us. John says that from the start, the authorities tried to make the students look like rebel fighters. We were normal students and we looked clean, so they made us roll on the ground to get dirty. This was to mislead the governor and make him think we were rebels. The governor of Sinar came and addressed us with very racist language. You slaves are part of the militias, he said. You want to bring down the government. We are going to execute you. At the time, the state governor of Senar was Abdul Karim Adam. He's since lost his job as a result of the fall of President Bashir. John says that when he and the other students were arrested, they were taken to prison. We were beaten very violently and continuously from 4 to 11pm on the 24th of December. They tried to make us confess things that we didn't do. So he says he was tortured, but let's try and be clear on one point. Was he one of the students who was in those videos making a false confession? No, John says that he just had to bear the beatings. He was, however, being held in the same building as the students who were in those fake confession videos. John says that at one point, the then head of security services, a man called Salah Ghosh, came around to ask if the students were being tortured. If they lied and said they hadn't been mistreated, they were left alone, John says. But if they complained and said they had been beaten, the security officers would continue to torture them. And that led to the false confessions. What happened, John says, and we have spoken to other sources that back this up, is that the security services decided who they thought would be most susceptible to the torture and took them away to be electrocuted and waterboarded. We're told that six students then agreed to make confessions which were filmed and distributed by the regime. None of the confessions were true. These confessions were made under cruel torture. I personally know all of the students who confessed. We eat and drink together. We study together at the university. I know all their activities and interests, so it's impossible that any of the confessions were true. I'm 100% positive it's all lies. As of this week, all of the students who made those film confessions have been released from jail, without charge. Here's Jahan Henry from Human Rights Watch. This appears to be a complete frame job by the government and propaganda, and it fits the government's narrative that somehow the protests are being encouraged by what they're calling saboteurs, people who are actually linked with armed opposition groups inside the protest movement. And there is really no evidence that this is the case, and it is certainly not the first time we've seen Sudan try to frame 
somebody for, you know, links to rebels or for some other charges simply because of their opposition to the government. This has happened in the past. I have documented similar cases in past years. And Darfuri students are a more frequent target of these attempts to frame people. Jahan Henry told me why. So there is a student group that is linked with the rebel movement in Darfur. Now, this is not the same as being linked to an armed opposition group. There's nothing illegal about having this organization. So I think the government is accusing these students of being members of the rebel group and having weapons, when in fact all they were are Darfuris. And even the rebel leader himself, Abdul Wahid El-Noor, posted a video on YouTube laughing off the claims that these students were part of his group. I mean, we heard earlier that the government unveiled these confessions at a press conference. They were broadcast on state TV and, crucially, they were all over social media. What happened when these false confessions started circulating on Facebook? Well, definitely not what the Sudanese government had hoped for. Through the Facebook posts, we were able to expose the lying regime's false accusations and the truth of what these youth have experienced since their arrests. This is Albert. Like the other students we spoke to, we're not using his real name either because of the risk of reprisals. But I can tell you that like John, the other man we've heard from, he knew the students who were arrested. He studied with them. And Albert told us that soon after the confessions started being shared on Facebook, people started posting against the government, calling out the videos as fakes, using hashtags such as we are all Darfur. This is a flavour of some of the comments. After the security services arrested and fabricated charges and hit and tortured you, they go on TV and say that you're a terrorist cell. However long the oppressor lives, his day will come. Hashtag Darfur students are innocent. I call on all lawyers to band around these students and prove their innocence of these fabricated charges. And I call on all university students to stand together with their brothers. Freedom for the nation. The government is out of control, arresting students in Darfur and fabricating accusations against them. That outrage and disbelief spilled over from social media and into the street protests. That led to new chants, like this one, which we also heard earlier. The crowd is chanting at the government, Hey, you, arrogant racists, we are all Darfur. In other words, Owen, what they're saying is they didn't believe the confessions were genuine and that they believe the students were admitting to crimes they didn't commit. Exactly. Remember, those protests started because of rising bread and fuel prices. But Albert says the government's attempts to blame a group of Darfuri students for the unrest backfired. It just added to the anger at President Bashir on the streets and calls for their release became a rallying cry. Through this case, people all across the country are now aware of the injustices that Darfuris have faced over the past 30 years. So earlier, I mentioned the conflict in Darfur, which has gone on and on for years. At this stage, I think we should talk about its roots. But there's someone else here at the BBC who, I think, might be able to do that better than me. Hi, I'm Mohanad Hashim. I'm Sudanese and I work for the BBC. There has been a conflict ongoing in Sudan's western region of Darfur since the early 2000s. Now, at the time, the Bashir regime was accused of carrying out an alleged genocide against ethnicities distinctly of an African origin. 
these were ethnicities that did not have Arabic as their native tongue. With that in mind, the Sudanese government has always portrayed to its local audience the problem in Darfur as one that has been orchestrated, masterminded by Western powers who are trying to stoke these divisions. And they've constantly tried to portray the Darfur rebel groups in bad light. What happened to the Darfur students, some other detainees, and many of the protest leaders shows that there are genuine violations. This is a Sudanese lawyer. We're also protecting his identity because of security concerns. He is part of the Darfur Bar Association, which condemned the media trial of the students and attempted to bring a case against the Sudanese government for their detention. What happened to the Darfuri men confirms that the confessions were illegal and went against legal procedures. The facts are known to all. It's a targeting of Darfuris. This is not just an isolated incident. Jahan Henry of Human Rights Watch told me that this kind of discrimination against Darfuris is a long-running issue. Darfuris always get the worst treatment. And I've documented detention cases for many years in Sudan. And it is always the Darfuri students who end up getting beaten up the worst. A lot of racism in the security forces in Sudan and amongst the security agents who are doing these arrests and detentions and subjecting the students to really serious beatings, sometimes torture, especially if their justification is, oh, well, you're part of a rebel movement, you know, then the treatment can be really, really bad. It's racial because they're from Darfur. They're seen as a threat. They're seen as part of the rebel movements. But it's also just plain racism. You know, in Sudan, there is a problem with race. Black Africans are not the Arab elites. Here's a question that perhaps is going to be in the minds of a lot of people listening. If those false confessions drew so much criticism on Facebook... Why didn't the regime block social media? I mean, we've seen that happen in other countries. Well, they tried. And we should point out that social media is one of the few sources of independent information in Sudan. The conventional media has, until now, been tightly controlled by the government. Radio and television are state-owned. Newspapers are heavily censored. The censors will read them before they're printed and simply order publishers to cut out stories they don't like. But the lawyer we spoke to told me that social media censorship is not that comprehensive and that the protesters have found out ways around the restrictions that are in place. Here's Mahanad from BBC Africa again. The Sudanese government was keen to shut the internet down very early on in this uprising, as early as the 20th of December, as in one day after the protest broke out. And what they did is that they initially throttled the internet. And what I mean by throttling the internet is the speed of your connectivity becomes very, very slow. Imagine overnight you'd be used to checking your Facebook on your mobile. Suddenly you're going into Facebook and it's telling you this website is not accessible. What happened is then activists immediately started sharing tips on using VPNs, virtual private networks. So the protesters were using virtual private networks or VPNs, software that can make it look like phones are outside of the country so they can evade censorship. Owen, what happened to John, the student we heard from earlier who was tortured? Well, the torture continued. The guards beat him and gave him electric shocks. Then after a couple of months, he was released. They made me sign a declaration saying that I will not break the law 
and they gave me my belongings. When I was released, the officers came and asked for forgiveness. They told me, we were just doing what we were told to do. I told them, I'm innocent. You came and raided my house, detained and tortured me for no reason. I don't forgive any of you. Then I went home. But at first, he had a tough time convincing people that he was innocent, even members of his own family. They lied to my father. The rumours they spread on TV went viral all over Sudan. Normal citizens believed them. My father believed them at the beginning. But now he believes me. Now, throughout this programme, we've heard some very serious allegations about how torture was used to implement a fake news scheme that ultimately failed. Owen, what has the Sudanese government and authorities said about them? Well, we contacted the Sudanese embassy here in London and asked them for an interview or a statement addressing the various issues raised by our investigation. But unfortunately, they didn't reply to us. Omar al-Bashir and key figures from his former government have been arrested, but military leaders who served under him remain in post. They have already said that Bashir will not be extradited to the International Criminal Court to face charges of war crimes related to Darfur. And as we said earlier, the situation in Sudan remains fluid. Owen Pinnell from the BBC's Arabic Investigations team, thanks very much. That's it for this episode of Trending. Special thanks to Flora Carmichael from the BBC's Beyond Fake News Project and our editor, Mike Wendling. This episode was recorded and mixed by Andy Garrett. If you'd like to support the work we do here, then please leave us a review or a rating. It won't take you more than a few seconds and it'll really help people find our work. And if you're on the lookout for more podcasts, before we go, let me recommend this one from our colleagues at the BBC World Service. It's called Parentland, and as you might have guessed, it's all about mm, parenting. You know how sometimes brothers and sisters can go from laughing to fighting in just a matter of seconds? Well, this week, Parentland have been taking a closer look at sibling rivalry and the science around it. Have a listen. Just search for Parentland wherever you get your podcasts.